Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. We answer their questions first, so if you've got a burning question, sign up on Patreon. We've also got some uh, uh, stuff going on on Patreon. We're going to have some sort of unique podcasts released only to the Patreon folks, and so that's another uh, perk for doing Patreon. Um, so this guy, Sam Ross, you know, he says, first, he loves the podcast. Thank you for being one of the few sources of information on the cutting edge of diet for performance and health. I'm interested in mountaineering, which shares some similar bioenergetics to ultra events in terms of duration and intensity of bigger routes. I've recently focused a lot more on running to develop fat adaptation, uh, fat, fat adaptation and base fitness for the upcoming winter season. I currently run up to around 15 miles in a zone one to zone two heart rate with a long-term side goal of building up the beginner distance ultra one day. I try, I try remain fasted or carb fasted for all my run work and find it pretty easy to exist on high protein fat under 50 grams of carbs daily. That said, I've recently been adding in carbs around 150 grams a day distributed before and after climbing and or strength sessions. I have also experimented with around 100 grams of carbs on my running days too. This feels good. This also feels good. Usually after and sometimes with a gel around the hour mark to access a higher gear. My question is, how can I dial in this further? Zach, when you do begin to introduce carbs into your training, and when in the day do you choose to consume these relative to your run workouts? The idea of maintaining some uh, daily carbs is based on recommendations from the guys at Uphill Athlete who suggest an overly keto diet can switch your ability to add in carbs, switch off your ability to add in carbs. Have you seen this? The proposed idea is that by training carb fasted, we can unlock the benefits say the Bullock study will maintain the ability to metabolize hard carbs during high intensity efforts on the mountain. So it sounds like a pretty typical question, high carb during certain periods of time for higher performance. What do you, what do you say on that, Zach? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool question. Um, I'll start with, uh, with the Volick study, just because I think that needs to be uh, kind of outlined a bit beforehand. Uh, so when we looked at the Volick study, that was a high fat versus high carb elite endurance, ultra endurance athlete study. So the, by definition, the high fat group was 10% or less of their daily intake of carbohydrate. Um, so it wasn't like a 30 to 50 gram per day, like you're going to see from a classical ketogenic approach that are, was more or less kind of put into play, um, from, from a medical standpoint. Uh, and then part of that's just due to lifestyle variances. Like if you're someone who's you know, going to the gym three times a week because the doctor told you to, and you may be obese, maybe have diabetes, something like that. Your lifestyle is quite a bit different than, than an elite endurance athlete or quite a bit different than, uh, clearly what, uh, what Sam is doing. So when you think of context of energy expenditure in the context of what you are probably consuming in terms of volume of food during your, your most active times of year, you know, 10% carbohydrate is, uh, you know, probably well above 50 grams in terms of like what you're taking in on some of those bigger days. 
so I think what you described to me where you're hitting like 150 grams of carbohydrate per day, uh, you're probably right in the parameter or close to the parameter of what you we saw most of those guys doing at, in the faster study. So I don't think you're really deviating too far from that. Um, the other thing to talk about too is like you're doing a lot of zone one, zone two. For me, when I'm doing zone one, zone two stuff, I consider that kind of that that lower end, more aerobic base uh, of training. And I don't really add a whole lot of carbs back during that. Usually when I'm doing a lot of that type of work, it's either at the beginning of the training plan or as I'm phasing into like race specific pace because, you know, 100 milers tend to be lower intensity and I'm in zone one, zone two quite a bit during a lot of that. So, uh, you know, it, it takes on that specificity of training where you match your stuff, you match your race specific paces and workouts closer to the race itself. Um, so as I'm kind of ramping up in that early stage of the zone one, zone two, like base building phase more or less, uh, yeah, I don't really add a whole lot of cards back right away until I start to notice that um, maybe I'm feeling a little flat or something like that. Then I'll maybe bring it up a little bit, but I'm bringing it up from almost nothing because when I'm done with a race and I start, when I recover and I'm building back up, uh, I'm coming off of a phase of my nutrition plan that my carbs are at the lowest. Um, so I'm in that phase, I'm kind of building back up to that maybe 10% or that 150 grams per day. Uh, and then after that, it kind of gets, it gets really specific to what I'm doing. Uh, when I get above that, or even when I'm at that 150 gram mark, uh, you know, that's usually when I'm starting to add in some more zone three, maybe some zone four and zone five work as well. And ramping up the strength training a little bit. Uh, for me, I like to do the times when I have carbs, I like to have them at dinner mostly. Um, especially cause I think mainly cause I do a lot of my work in the morning when I wake up and I do my runs on an empty stomach, more or less, I'll have some black coffee with maybe some cream or something like that. Uh, but really like my stomach, I don't like having a lot of food there. So I, I try to, if I'm going to have some, some of my carbs, I'll usually pair it with dinner and that way it's kind of under, uh, uh, it goes in with a variety of other stuff like protein and fats and things like that. Um, the other point of day when I would bring in some carbohydrates would be potentially after that big morning session. So my morning sessions when I'm, especially when I'm in peak training tend to be two to three hours in length. So after that, um, I'm essentially coming off like of an overnight fast with a little bit of energy with the coffee and cream um and maybe a little bit of raw honey but like um it's very minimal like at most that cup of coffee is going to be 150 calories maybe it's not super significant in the context of an overnight fast and you know a two to three hour workout so uh that's the next time i would maybe introduce a little bit of carbohydrates if i'm looking to kind of split it into two different dosages during the day as opposed to just doing it all at once uh, and you know, for me and from, from my standpoint, I'm thinking that's the most optimal time for them that end up in muscle glycogen, just because my body's probably pretty receptive to whatever fuel source I give it at that point. Zach, have you found, uh, you know, as far as, uh, cause the question he had about fasted training, I know there's some controversy as to whether that is effective for fat loss. Uh, I don't know that you're using that or even need to worry about that, obviously. But I mean, the other thing is, you know, when you talk about carbohydrates you bring in, do you find that, that certain carbohydrates work better for what you want to do? Would, would a simple, you know, like a simple sugar or a simple starch work better for you? Or do you, or do you preference the complex ones? How do you determine that? And then do you, do you notice any difference in the way you feel based on the carbohydrate source? 
Yeah, you know, I feel I, I can usually tell like a difference between when I if I would eat, say, like, if I'd have like a tablespoon of raw honey or a sweet potato or some berries or melons, which tend to be a little more on the lower end of the glycemic index, um, versus like if I have a white potato, uh, or if I'm taking in, I use a product called X Endurance uh, Fuel 5, which that has like a varied, it's got like, it's got some slow release carbs. It also has some faster acting carbohydrates. Um, what I've noticed is, you know, since doing a high fat approach for as long as I have now, like a little over seven years at this point, I can tell like a little, a bit of a difference. Like when you have some of those more refined ones, I feel like I do get that immediate kind of pop, um, versus maybe a little bit of a more like not as abrupt of an energy spike. Like I want to just go sprinting out the door, but um, you know, that, that just tends to kind of drag out a little longer, but not at the point where it's going to be like this real explosive type of, uh, um, immediate energy. Um, you know, that's just my, my speculation more or less, but it happens routinely enough. Like when I'm, if I say I have like a couple of, uh, you know, small to medium sized white potatoes versus, you know, small to medium, uh, sweet potato or something like that. Uh, so Usually the way I differentiate is like if I'm going to have the carb source with dinner, like, you know, before I'm going to be going to bed in a few hours, that's when I'm going to kind of skew the more slower acting stuff like the sweet potatoes, the melons, the berries. If it's post big workout, that's when maybe I would have like the white potatoes. Um, or uh, if I do, I don't do a whole lot of fueling in training during the workouts. I will a few times as I'm kind of getting ready just to kind of dial in my race fueling strategy. And that's when I would, would use kind of the fuel five stuff during the, cause I know he also asked about using like gels during workouts. And I don't think I really said much about that, but I usually break my longer workouts into two categories as I'm getting closer to the race. One is a fasted um, or a fuelless workout where I'm really trying to get an idea of like, how I'm feeling or how I'm feeling when I'm not having access to those fuels. And then I'll do another one where I practice a little bit of my race fueling strategy and just kind of get an idea of reminding myself what to expect with that. And, uh, so that's usually how I break that down. Uh, I like to say like, you know, everyone, I guess a lot of people in the kind of high fat, low carb community are pretty into testing blood ketones and stuff like that. And, and I'm not against testing blood ketones. I think it's sometimes kind of cool information, but I try not to get too hung up on those numbers. Um, what I do like though, is I like to do a field test where it's like, I know I'm fat adapted enough. If I can go out and do like a four hour long run with just water and electrolytes and feel really, really even keel and not feel like I have a huge energy dip or low or, or rise and stuff like that. Um, so that's why I'm dividing those long runs into kind of two categories so that I can kind of do that field test and gauge like, okay, I'm where I need to be from a fat adaptation standpoint but then also have the opportunity to kind of test out some of that, that other race feeling type stuff. Yeah. One other point he brought up was the idea of somehow maintaining metabolic flexibility or keeping mm -hmm. some of those uh, metabolic uh, enzymes, some of that machinery in, in, you know, available for when you do utilize carbohydrates or glucose. And so do you find that there's a period of time that you feel that you have to, you have to add carbs? Can you go, several weeks without it or can you go or is it more you know a few days at a time what, what are your thoughts on the length of time it takes and there's probably you know some studies out there that i'm not aware of but uh that, that might go into that but i know there are certain enzymes that are down regulated to where you're yeah. not as efficient 
is mm-hmm. using carbohydrates. So what are your thoughts on frequency as far as if you're going to do a little bit of a carb, not, I won't even call it a refeed, but just a kind of a carb tickle, if you want to use that term, just to kind yeah. of keep those things ticking along. How, how frequently would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because I see that too. I know there is a study that looked at the downregulation um, of the metabolic pathways and the big warning sign was, well, if you go too low carb, then you're going to give up that fuel substrate. Um, so like, I, I, I don't know how practical that is to a real life standpoint. Um, from my experience, like I've gone really low carb for, for quite a while. And when I bring the carbs back, I, they're, they're working. <laughs> like, I mean, I have the workout data to support that. It's, uh, you know, one thing I look at is like, I didn't get into this because I wanted to like necessarily, you know, try to prove a high fat, low carb approach, right? I got into it because I wanted it to be something that I could use to my advantage in training and racing and, uh, you know, make what I'm doing sustainable. So, uh, if, if I would have fall flat on my face and just wasn't able to do workouts to the level I had in the past, then it would have been a clear sign to me. I needed to change something. And, and that's part of, part of the reason why I've done like a, a little bit of a carb periodization approach because I noticed that I can bring back a little bit of the carbohydrate and uh, still hit the workouts to the level that I was in the past when I was high carb, but I don't need to go well past like what I would consider necessary carbohydrate. So um, I think like if you're doing that, if you're doing like that periodized approach to training and you're periodizing your carbohydrates with that, um, and for me, that can be anything from during recovery to no running at all, just resting and gradually building up where I might be at like next to no carbohydrate or certainly in that 30 to 50 gram realm. And then, you know, four or five weeks later, as I start ramping up, start you do saying what you said, I kind of start tickling the carbohydrates a little bit. Um, you know, I found that when, when I'm doing those, those cycles throughout the course of the year, I'm introducing carbohydrate enough that I, um, I would be shocked if I'm like shutting down that metabolic pathway. I think it would be pretty obvious when I start doing a zone four, zone five workout in the midst of a high volume week or something like that, where, you know, you just don't have that last gear. So usually what I tell people is like when they're building up their base and if they don't feel like they need the carbohydrate and they like the way they're eating, they find it sustainable. They find it uh, that it makes them feel good. Their sleep is good. Their energy levels are good. Their mood is good. All that stuff, all those great like feedback that your body's going to give you. Um, you don't feel like you need to bring the car back right away. But once you start ramping your training up and start adding in some varied workouts and things like that, if you notice that your high end stuff is suffering, that's when it's time to kind of try to play around to bring that stuff back. Yeah, I mean, I'll just put in my own personal two bits on this. And I do think, you know, there is a certain ability that our body has to provide the fuels we need, depending upon the activity we're doing. I mean, I, again, I'm basically without carbohydrates pretty much constantly, you know, other than a few incidental ones. And, you know, I perform at a pretty high level of what I would consider glycolytic activity, you know, either either hard sprints or hard repeated sprints. And I don't really lose gears. I perform at a, you know, basically world-class level at my age. And, you know, and, and, and we see that, uh, you know, my fasting glucose goes up to accommodate that. So I'm, I'm certainly using glucose for fuel during those higher, higher, more difficult, ex, you know, intense exercise. And we saw, if you remember back to our show with Alessandro Ferretti, you know, we talked a little bit about how he's seeing athletes involved in 
you know, high intense sprint type sports, we'll see their glucose reach up to meet that demand. And whether that is a pathologic thing or a physiologic adaptation to the, to the fuel demands you need, uh, I think that's, that's debatable. Anyway, that's good stuff, man. Let's, let's go on to the next topic. Cause we, we could probably spend a whole show on, on just how you train effects. In fact, we will. Our listeners don't ask bit. simple questions. <laughs> They're all like multi-tiered. So we can only do two or three at a time. It seems like. Let's, let's get, uh, let's get you read old Jay Woodley's uh, question. And I'll see if cool. I can answer like something appropriate for me. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sending in Jay. Uh, it says, I was wondering if you can talk about body fat percentage. Generally speaking, what is the on average or what is on average the body fat percentage people have when on a carnivore or low carb diet? Also, can you speak about being on a carnivore or low carb diet and being in a sport that requires the athletes to make certain weights such as like MMA or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, et cetera? Thank you. I think this is great what you and Dr. Baker are doing. Please keep it up. Awesome. All right, Jay, since I'm the kind of the resident carnivore I'm an <laughs> expert here, at least uh, I'll talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I mean, body, you know, it's going to vary. I mean, you know, there's people on, on a carnivore diet that are extremely lean. There's people that are not as lean. Most people will find that they are able to get leaner, you know, in general. Now, there are some certain, uh, what, what I think if we look at, you know, normal human physiology and normal human body fat percentages, you know, it probably ranges for most males. I'll, I'll just I'll just stick to males for now. Uh, is you know somewhere, maybe ten to fifteen percent. I think is 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 pretty average for an average human being. You know, that's not that's that's you know metabolically and physiologically healthy. Uh, different sports will demand different body fat percentages for um, maximum performance. You know, uh, anybody that goes in and does a bodybuilding contest will get super lean. But at the same time, they'll tell you that they're, they're not going to perform particularly well. Their strength is going to be down. There's going to be a lot of different things that kind of are negative. Now, as far as uh, an MMA fighter or somebody likes to make weight class, I think that's one place where a carnivore diet really will shine because I do think it is a strategy, not the only strategy, but it is a strategy that allows people to become fairly lean and hit those weight classes without compromising a lot of strength because, again, you remember – uh, protein is important. There's things called protein sparing modified fast, which, you know, some people could argue that a carnivore diet can mimic depending on how, you know, how many, how, how low you, you bring your, your calories down. In fact, it basically does do that. And so I think it is, uh, something that is, you know, from my experience and, and expect, actually talking to a number of MMA fighters and Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys that are doing this, they find that they're, they're making their weight classes pretty easily and they're performing extremely well. They're not sacrificing a lot of strength, which is what commonly happens, particularly uh, as you drop a lot of weight. Now, again, the, the general caveat is that if you can bring your weight down in a, you know, in a, in a kind of a gradual manner, you're going to do better. If you, if you rapidly drop weight, you know, over, over a short period of time, then you're going to suffer uh, from a performance standpoint. So I think long-term strategy, uh, it works out pretty well. Um, you know, there are, certainly people on a carnivore diet that actually gain weight. And I think there is, and I know there's kind of a lot of back and forth about, is it all about hormones? Is it all about calories? And I think, I think it's a combination of both of those things. And so I think at some point uh, you can, you can, you know, if you're coming from a health standpoint, you can fix your health, uh, your metabolic health. I think is one way to help do that by incorporating more protein in the diet, incorporating less potentially damaging foods. And then, and then you can start to kind of approach what I would consider normal human physiology, and then you can start to 
hone in on how you're going to, how you're going to cut weight. And I think the, the general rules are still going to apply for many people and probably for most people. And that's going to be gradual calorie reduction, perhaps uh, increasing protein uh, relative to overall uh, content, content. Zach, any comments on this stuff? Yeah, no, I think what you said is probably um, more valuable than anything I could add. <laughs> but uh, uh, I will say like, it seems like protein is the one that consistently shows up as the the big mover of the macronutrients in terms of it taking your body just a little more to to break it down and utilize it so that it's not going to add as much of a quote unquote calorie um if you're someone who's tracking that sort of thing um if you add you know say 100 grams of protein versus 100 grams of of sugar your your body is going to take more energy to break down that protein and i think regardless of what nutrition approach you take, you're going to see those numbers show up in, in the studies that look at kind of the metabolism side of things. Um, you know, so I think like from a pure weight loss standpoint, it, it's like, it, it seems like if, if you're not afraid to eat, eat, you know, a healthy portion of protein, um, which I think, you know, based on, on the folks we've interviewed here, it seems like it's not something you should be avoiding in the first place. Uh, that could be something that would be helpful. Um, in terms of uh, getting down there. But yeah, like Sean said, it, when, when you do those drastic weight cuts, you're kind of, you're putting your body to that roller coaster of like, um, you know, metabolic, potential metabolic issues and your body seems to get good at adjusting to those type of things. So uh, that longer sustained approach is probably going to be less likely to show your body this, this message of like scarcity, I guess, more or less. And, and then, I'll add to that too. It's like, you know, food is energy. Like when you're eating food, you're eating energy, you're taking in energy. Um, so a lot of times I think when it comes to weight loss, like, uh, you know, barring the hormonal side of things, if we're just looking at it from an energy side of things, it's like, if, if a, if a high fat, low carb carnivore diet is going to be a diet that you can adhere to and keep consistent, that's, that that's great. And that's probably a good thing to do because you, that's what you ultimately want is something that you can the majority of the time stick to and not feel like you're, you know, constantly short of something or constantly needing or wanting something else. So, uh, you know, using your own individual, uh, experiences, I think is valuable when you're picking that sort of stuff too. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good, and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. 
Next question is from Harrison Kane. If you want to go down this just chronologically, also looks like a question possibly from me, Zach. If you want to, you want to cool. hit this one. Yeah, I can read it. Uh, let's see. Um, did you say? Oh yeah, here we go. Uh, hey guys, thank you so much for all you do. You're both great sources of inspiration and knowledge. I'm sure you get questions all day, so I apologize in advance. I've been on the carnivorous diet for a month, and I think I have histamine intolerance. I would be very troublesome and stressful if I couldn't continue with this method of eating as I've had some relief. Do you have any recommendations, any experience seeing DAO supplementation use, or is it just find underlying issues possibly gut related and supplement so I could still eat meat and have that heal the gut? Or is this just not for me and I can't eat meat in large quantities? Thanks always for your time and work. Yeah, so interesting. So histamine intolerance is something that we see from time to time, you know, in the general population, but we also see it in, in folks that are doing a carnivorous diet. And so uh, that often, uh, there is some histamine that, that occurs naturally in meat, and it particularly is more common in aged meats. And so one of the uh, issues that some people will have is if they're eating a lot of, you know, aged meat, or if they're eating a lot of, you know, like, uh, uh, processed meats, which which tend to sit around for a while, you know, in the U.S., it's pretty common, and, and, and quite honestly, the, the the norm for most beef to be hung for a couple of weeks uh, as part of its uh, processing. It's just a normal way to do it. So there's some histamine in there. Um, that you know, for some people, histamine can and histamine is a natural part of the immune system. Called it's released from something called mast cells, and so that is something that you know, is a natural reaction, but it can lead to an inflammatory uh, problem for some people. There's something called mast activation syndrome that some people will get from this. But uh, you are right in the fact that histamine does play a role in the gut. And then so uh, there are, and you talk about DAO, which is diamine oxide uh, supplementation. So that, that is a naturally occurring substance throughout the body. But two of the more relevant places are, it's released in the jejunum and the ileum, which are the, the sort of the distal part of the small intestine. You know, it's, the small intestine is divided into the, uh, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. And so, uh, but DAO is actually manufactured in the jejunum and the ileum and it helps to, to, to break down the, the histamine that you might be ingesting. And so, if you do have underlying gut uh, dysfunction, uh, it's very conceivable that, that, that there may be some. Uh, problem with with liberating DAO from your own internal system uh, just like we see people with low gastric acid secretion and a number of other uh, uh, sort of gut maladaptations probably through you know chronic disease which may be secondary just to chronic 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 poor diet and so the question is can that recover with time uh, with lack of exposure to things that might be causing problems I think the jury's out on that my suspicion is probably it can as far as the supplementation with that, um, I haven't had uh, seen a great deal of uh, anecdotal or a personal experience with that either way. I don't think it's probably anything that would cause a great deal of harm to try. And so I think that's something you can, you can certainly uh, play with and see. Um, but I do think in my uh, view that it's probably something that the gut can recover from and, and ramp up its uh, endogenous production of DAO over time. But, you know, you may, like I said, you may want to avoid uh, aged meats, uh, processed meats like sausage and stuff like that. Try to stick to fresh meats if you can, and then go from there. Cool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's um, out of my league, so I won't pretend to know anything about that. 
um, other than it seems like, uh, you know, people have a variety of different responses, different foods. And, you know, my thought with, with food in general has always been like, you know, if, if you're eating something and it's causing you all sorts of problems, like you can maybe ride it out for a while and see if your body adjusts, but ultimately, you know, you don't want to be uncomfortable all day. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I don't eat loads and loads of fiber because, you know, I end up on the bathroom in the bathroom more often than I would like if I do that. And that's just doesn't seem like a good route. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it like that, I guess. Um, our next question is how many, how many do we want to do today, Sean? Do you have an idea or, uh, uh, why don't we, we've been, seem like we've been doing four has been our okay. kind of our standard. Let's stick to that. Man. Cool. Maybe we can do that. Um, this next one, I can read it. It is from Ben Casado. And I think he is, uh, alluding to, he has a new question that no one else will ask. So let's see what he's got. It says, uh, think you've heard them all. Well, here's one for you guys. I'm a 65 year old retired sheet metal worker living in Northern California. I've always been the active outdoors type for work and play problem I've had for the past 25 years is a disease that most people haven't heard of. I'm not sure if I should call this a disease or a curse of genetics. I had my first diagnosis of Dupuytren contracture at around age 40. I knew at that point I was just going to be carrying on the family tradition. Lumps and bumps on my hands and bent fingers. Three years ago, I had Dupuytren's contractures release surgery performed on my left hand. This helped to straighten my fingers and remove the half a dozen or so lumps and bumps on the palm of my hand. I was forewarned by the surgeon that there were no guarantees and they do have a tendency to grow back. Well, grow back they did. They came back with a vengeance, not only growing back on my left hand under the surgical scars, but now I have them on my right hand, which brings me to present day and the question I have to ask, why the hell doesn't the whole world know about the low carb lifestyle? I started doing the keto diet or keto low carb lifestyle of, of which I'd rather call it six months ago. I started this low carb venture in order to lose weight. At this point, I've lost 20 pounds. The byproduct of the lifestyle, and maybe I should call it the miracle, is the reduction and almost disappearance of the lumps and bumps, bent fingers, and the painful symptoms of Doiputrin's. All the disappearances of the, oops, all, all the other benefits are there as well. Getting my hands back and slowly gaining on straightening my fingers is truly something that needs to be acknowledged. Just thought I would share with you guys and say thank you so much for the podcast and all you do to help folks like me. Okay, so I guess, <laughs> I guess that wasn't a question, but more or less a testimonial, which um, we're always happy to read. But wow, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. You know, it's, I think it's just, just my two cents on that sort of thing. It's like, I think we oftentimes get into this, this, this uh, argument or debate or conversation about um, longevity. And I mean, I get it. Like people, I think they, especially as they get older, they start realizing like, okay, well, how much time do I have? And um, how do I make it last as long as possible? Um, and it's like, that's kind of one piece of the puzzle and the other piece is quality of life. So, uh, you know, regardless of whether you think what you're doing is, is going to be like the number one thing for longevity, you also have to take into consideration, uh, the quality of life. It's like, do you want to live to be 90, but have that last 20, 25 years be really miserable? Um, I, it's a personal 
question and answer, I guess. But for me, no, <laughs> I'd rather live shorter and have a really, really robust, exciting, like, like non weird symptom type of, uh, existence. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive either. I think, you know, those tend to go hand in hand a lot of times too. But, um, I guess what I'm getting at is with Ben, it seems like you found something that's working great for you. Like your body is literally regressing or reverting the, the things that were causing you problems and causing you annoyances from a day-to-day standpoint, uh, through nutrition, which I think is a huge win. It's, you know, when you, when you're eating food to help you manage things, it, you're not incurring a significant cost. You're, you're really just shifting your budget to something different or doing it differently from that side. You're not, you know, taking all kinds of weird, weird supplements and things like that. If you don't need to, um, Sean, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with this condition. It's called the correct the correct pronunciation is dupatrins. It's a hard word to spell, and every time I had to write it in a patient chart, I had to look up how to spell it because usual. I think I said it three different ways in that. Yeah, dupatrins <laughs> contractor, and so that that is a a hand condition, and there are there are analogous conditions. There's something called Lederhosen's disease, which is a similar. Uh, sort of cording uh, or, you know, the scarring of the tissues in the foot. And there's also, strangely enough, something called Peyronie's disease, which actually happens in the penis. And so people end up with a scarred in bent penis because of that. And so it's all kind of a family of, of conditions that are probably somewhat related. Interestingly, uh, Dupuytren has been thought to have some genetic uh, sort of origins, or at least we noted that there was a higher pre- prevalence of this in people of Scandinavian origin. Also, uh, alcohol consumption tended to tended to run with this, and it's kind of interesting, possibly that you know I'm just as I look back at this, and you know there are these people you know Scandinavians typically the typical Scandinavian diet, you know these people originated out of out of cold Europe and and probably it was it was a fairly meat based diet, and so now that we're seeing much more carbohydrates brought into the diet, perhaps they are more susceptible to that, just a theory there, but it's interesting to see that going on a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet reverses this. And it's not the first time I've seen people talk about this, which is very remarkable. You know, Dupuytren's contractor is extremely, extremely difficult to to treat. It's often very progressive. You can do surgery to try to remove these, uh, what he calls lumps and bumps. Technically, a lot of people will call them cords. Now, the problem is those cords are often wrapped with uh, neurovascular structure. So it's very delicate surgery. It's very difficult to do. Uh, there are some other treatments where they inject things like collagenases, things that are, which will dissolve collagen in there, and that's been shown to have uh, some promise. But honestly, there aren't very good treatments at all for this. Even the surgical ones often recur. Um, most hand surgeons who generally deal with this, when I saw these patients, if it was something that needed surgery, I would refer that off to a hand surgeon just because I wasn't that wasn't really my purview for what I did in orthopedics. But um, but it's 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 very to me, very uh, interesting to find that diet can affect something like this and, and reverse scarring because it is, it's, it's significant scarring where the hand actually contracts where you lose motion in the fingers. And that is something that can be extremely debilitating. If you can imagine you, you're unable to straighten your, straighten your fingers out. Uh, that, that's very problematic and that occurs certainly as this disease progresses. But um, again, this, this shows you the power of nutrition and what we don't know or we, we haven't chose to pursue. And I think this is something that we need to continue to uh, uh, pursue this and see what else is going on, because I think this could be really, you know, as I've said many times, I think this is probably the most powerful weapon we have in, against chronic disease. And 
Dupuytren's is another one of these sort of almost autoimmune type weird diseases, which we don't really know why. We, we figured out some association. We don't know why it occurs. And, and the speculation, you know, based on this example and others that I've seen is maybe there's something in, 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 our, in our diet or, or other environmental factors that cause this. And we need to just figure out what those are and then remove those. And a lot of times when you take the poison away, uh, guess what? People get better. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. So I think that's, that's four. So we can uh, cut this one off and um, put it up and then tackle some more down the road. Uh, I'll uh, remind listeners that uh, um, Patreon is uh, where we put up all our episodes first. We usually leave them up there for a couple of weeks. uh, So those who are supporting us on Patreon can have kind of an early access. Ultimately, we want everyone who wants to hear this stuff able to hear it. So then we end up releasing it to all the other podcast hosts and YouTube a couple weeks after that. And um, like Sean mentioned in the beginning of the episode too, uh, we have added a new thing to our Patreon, which is uh, we're going to hop on every once in a while and just give you some updates about what we're up to. Um, I think I put up, I put up one uh, that kind of looked at kind of a little bit of what I was doing the last couple of months as I built up to the Tunnel Hill 100 mile um, and that one is open at a little lower price than the the general episodes. If you subscribe for a dollar a month, you'll have access to those. And um, at this point, I think we're just going to leave those on Patreon. We won't release those ones out because they just tend to be, or at least um, the way I see them going at this point is they're just going to be kind of a little more just get on the microphone and start sharing some of the stuff that I've, that we've been doing. Um, and those will be more or less individual between Sean and myself uh but yeah uh if uh if you have the means definitely check out our patreon page and uh you know anything is is very we're very grateful for it's allowing us to kind of upgrade some of our stuff on the recording side of things and continue to grow as a podcast so thank you for all of that support thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with hosts dr sean baker and zach bitter If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.